You're listening to Augustus Cho's Fry It Up podcast on the Nana Music Network. All right, on today's Fry It Up podcast, my guest has spent 12 years in the professional WNBA league, has done basketball analysis for ESPN3, and at the present time has been asked to be the assistant coach of WNBA's Phoenix Mercury based on her past accomplishments. And today she has also recently published an author, book entitled At the End of the Day, which is an inspirational story of overcoming and succeeding in life, no excuses. Now, we welcome to the mic, Coach Chastity Melvin. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Joe. Thanks. It's my pleasure. And you're in Miami. You're in actually in Orlando, in the bubble, right? Well, actually, the NBA guys are in Orlando, and we're in Bradenton. Great. So we're okay. actually at the IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida. Um, and I get, I'm getting to do what I love, and I'm around a great, diverse group of women, as well as male coaches. So we're making it happen here in Bradenton. And we're going to talk about all those things. Now, you're a big-time coach. How's it feel? It's just great having the platform. I played for so long, played professional in the WNBA overseas. So to be, have the opportunity to be back on the sideline, it's um, very fulfilling and rewarding. You know what? I can't think of a nicer person for this to happen to. So you have my support. Thank now, you. As we start this thing, let's go down memory lane a little bit. Okay. And start your story when you were a little girl with big dreams in a small town in North Carolina. Tell us where you were born. I was born in Roseboro, North Carolina. Um, it's listed as a town, but actually we don't have enough people to qualify as a town if you go by the definition. But I went to a 1A high school. I was in a graduating class. My senior class had 93 people maybe in it. And just humble beginnings. My dad worked at a tire factory. Um, he's also a local minister in the community. So I, I was raised PK. I'm a preacher's kid. Wonderful. Um, just humble beginnings. First generation of success for my family. My parents didn't go to college. Um, my grandmothers didn't go to college. My Actually, my granddad couldn't read and write. Um, so it's just been, you know, from the start, very humble beginnings. Have two sisters, two brothers. And I just grew up listening to my dad and just kind of had, he had a vision for our family. He wanted us to be better than, you know, just do more and have more opportunities. So that was a big part of my life, just setting goals and trying to achieve them. When was the last time you were back in uh, Roseboro, North Carolina? Oh, I'm always back. They they just uh, actually they just dedicated the local park. They dedicated the um, gym, the basketball courts in my name. So I always go back. My parents still live there. My parents are so rural. They're like, we can't leave our house. <laughs> so have to go back there to see family. I also have a home there. Um, as much as whenever I can, I like to have camps and clinics. Um, go to the local high school and make sure that you know I'm around the kids because I want to keep inspiring them, especially rural kids, because they don't get out much, that there's a big world out there. And this is the place I came from, and I've been able to travel around the world. So I love my hometown. It's always a place I can go and just be myself. And, you know, I never forget where I come from. So your heart is still for Roseboro? Oh, always. I can go all over the world, but I'm always coming back home. I mean, some people don't have a home. Yeah, some people don't have a home to go back to. So, I'm a, I mean, I still have family, a lot of friends there, people who support me. So... Uh, I don't like staying that long, but I always go back home. <laughs> yeah, does Roseboro have a McDonald's yet or a Walmart? No, only a Hardee's. Only a Hardee's. <laughs> it's that kind of a town. It's a one-stop town. You got, yes. you got a street light now? <laughs> we got one stop light. One stop light. And yet, and from no, and no, more, no more dirt roads. Everything's paved. No more dirt there roads. There you go. <laughs> I did some research, and did you know you now have 1,400 residents in Roseboro? Oh, wow. Five families. So are you saying I can invest there now? I can get some? (laughs) Well, you bring your big dreams back to that little town and raise other girls to become what you have accomplished. And did you know Roseboro was a railroad town? It all began with 1989? Yes, I didn't know it was a railroad town. Yes, the railroad tracks were right behind my grandmother's. One of the things that I really appreciate about you is your humility and your down-to-earth personality, you know? So I want to touch base with you because I know you got your feet on the ground as you're dreaming big. Always, right? Always. I, I mean, I believe a lot of successful people, I mean, to stay successful and keep achieving success, you have to have a strong foundation. 
And I believe, you know, being humble and never forgetting where you come from is a part of that. You know, you can't just get too big, you know, because you're going to have those ups and downs and have a strong foundation and just having your feet grounded will help you, you know, bounce back a lot quicker. You know, uh, for someone like you who's made it big in the major leagues, coming from a small, small community, it's just a lot about not only you, but you're also about your parents. Tell us something about your parents a little bit. Well, I was, I can't thank my, thank my parents enough. Just all the sacrifices they made, my mom and dad, because a lot of people, when you're coming from a rural town and a small town, a lot of people don't leave the area. So my parents, not only were they married young, I, my, I think my mom had me at 21. Um, they weren't, uh, they didn't have college degrees, but they were around people who were like, why are you doing this with your kids? Or like, aren't you scared to take chastity to play basketball or put us in piano? So they were kind of ahead of their time as opposed to a lot of the other parents in the room. So they got a lot of judgment and, you know, they had to fight their parents. My grandmothers were like, no, don't let them go here. Don't let them go there. You know, they were very rural uh, areas and um, the culture is just, you know, protect your kids and it's very family oriented and don't let anyone in. So just the fact that they were strong enough and that they saw something in their kids and they wanted us to have more opportunities than they did. I mean, I can't think of them enough because I definitely wouldn't be the woman I am and the woman I grew into just for them having the courage, not being well educated with saying like, we're, we got to let them go and we want them to have better opportunities. And they always stress education. I could not play sports if I didn't have good grades. So That's that was beautiful. You know, that's, that's very inspiring. And you went to Lakewood uh, High School. Yes. And you won state championship with your sisters, uh, Danielle and Jamel, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. The three of the Melvin sisters made up three-fifths uh, of the team. Yeah, we were the entire team. I actually, a lot of people don't know this story, but I made other girls play basketball, and I had to go pick up the whole team. My dad, because I had two sisters and two brothers, my dad had an old station wagon which he got made fun of for a lot because he was this young man driving on a station wagon and all his other friends had like the Camaros and the old school cars. But I would take the station wagon and go pick up the entire team for practice and then drop them off just so we'd have a basketball team because quote unquote females weren't really, you know, they weren't really encouraged to play sports. So we only had one team and I, I, I forced girls to play and I'm glad they did. So, <laughs> well, that's one heck of a story because you ultimately want to stay championship, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was the biggest thing happening in our town. Like the women's basketball team was the first, you know, to win a state championship. So the entire town followed us to the championship game and people still talk about it till this day. Like it was the biggest thing that happened to Roseboro. Well, you're the biggest legend, living legend right now in Roseboro. <laughs> True? Yeah, I'll, I'll say that. People are still enamored. You know, like I'm thinking that was so many years ago, but people still remember it. I love that. That's a, that's a wonderful story. Uh, going back to the uh, state championship uh, for the girls that year, how many points you scored in that game? I had 37 in that game. <laughs> I, was not, I was not going back to Roseboro with a loss. <laughs> yeah, 37 points score has another significance later on, doesn't it? Yes, yes. yes. Tell us um, about that a little bit. Well, fortunately, I, I was able to get a college basketball scholarship to NC State. And four years, I just thrived as a player. Coach KL taught me how to just become the best athlete. And my senior year, we were able to make it to the Final Four. We had the miracle NCAA run. No one expected us to get there. And we made it to the Final Four, and I scored again 37 points. And so I don't know. That was my number from the basketball gods. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was very significant. Um, now, by the time you graduate, I'm sure you were recruited by lots of schools. Oh, yes, most yeah. definitely. So give us some of the names that you, you remember. Uh, just uh, Tennessee, all, everyone in the ACC, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina. I had a lot of schools from California, um, Southern Cal, um, New Hampshire, different schools, the Patriot League, um, different colleges. But I let people know early, like I was going to stay in the ACC. Um, that's what I grew up around, and that's kind of what I knew. And I knew I didn't want to leave my family. I mean, looking back now, I'm like, dang, I could have gone to Southern Cal. I could have gone to California. <laughs> you know, but I was from that small town. I did not see, like, you know, the West Coast and the world being so big. So I wanted to stay near my family. And I, I, it came down to UNC Chapel Hill and North Carolina State, and I chose NC State. Why? Why uh, stayed over Carolina? Uh, it was really, really close. My mom wanted me to go to Carolina, but I just felt a better connection with um, Coach K. Yao. We shared the same faith, and I, we just had a conversation where it just kind of clicked, where I felt like 
she knew me um, off the court. And I think that helped our relationship more on the court, um, just from my family background. We had similar backgrounds. Her dad was kind of similar to my dad in pushing his girls. And, you know, the KL sisters are legends within themselves. So uh, we just had similar stories, and I felt more comfortable with her. Speaking of your sisters, whatever happened to Danielle and uh, Jamel? Did they pursue the sport, uh, basketball after they left? Yeah, Daniel got a college scholarship to East Carolina, and my baby sister, Jamel, she didn't want to play basketball. Um, so she she got her degree. She's working in Atlanta now, um, has a human resource job out in Atlanta, does a lot of different things, um, worked in education as well. Danielle's working on her Ph.D., um, so she's trying to complete that in uh, racial and social justice movements. So she's going to be big time in the political area. And um, they both have families and kids. I don't have any kids, so they've done it all. <laughs> well, your parents, your mother and father must be awfully proud to have a family, you know, children like uh, the way you guys turned out. Yeah, I, t- I tell my dad, they're, I, they're always, oh, we should have done this. We should, we should have, I said, no, you guys did enough. You know, like you guys really paved the way and really made sacrifices so that we'd have all these opportunities and they get to live vicariously through us. So that's what they're doing in retirement right now. They can't come to the bubble, but you know, they're visiting my sisters and brothers and they travel um, to different places just to visit us. And they're keeping my dog right now. So just for the record, uh, let's, let's plug your faith. Uh, What, what denomination was your father a pastor of? He was pastor of um, the AME Zion, so the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. Um, and so we grew up with Jesus ideals, Jesus principles. Um, my dad's a strong Christian faith, um, very traditional. And uh, that, that brings me to like where I am. I'm very spiritual. I also believe in Jesus ideals. That's my foundation. Um, and so my family, we have very different dynamics in the faith, but yeah, we're based, we love Jesus. Uh, we do follow the Jesus ideals. Um, I'm love and light and I'm non-judgment. So that's where I kind of land. But my dad's been ministering for as long as I can remember. <laughs> I'm sure he's from the old school. So that's. Oh uh, yeah. He's, he's old school. My brother, my brother has a different way where he's going with his ministry and I'm like, super positive and this and this and dad you can't judge and dad you can't be hard on people so he's just trying to balance us all out but he's still old school and traditional but you know the power of prayer and the fact that you know he's realizing we have different ministries he's kind of coming around and I think the pandemic has helped him tremendously because now he has to go online and we're getting to form a relationship with helping him um, be able to access his church via online and teaching him about Facebook um, and all that kind of stuff. So I tell people, you can learn a lot during this pandemic. It brings families closer together in different ways. I can tell right now that this is going to be part one and part two podcast because we've got a lot to cover. We're just, we're just beginning this thing. So is that okay with you? <laughs> oh, yes. 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 You're a good soul, Cho. So I'm, I'm, I'm down for it. <laughs> because right now we're at NC State. Uh, nine, year 1994 to 1998 and while you were playing you were listed at six foot three yes. right and you play a power four and, and slash center right back and forth and how did that work out for you did you, you did you feel comfortable being uh, playing a power four and being a center I mean inside I always felt like I could have been a bigger guard I wanted to handle the ball more but back in the day that's where the tall girls there weren't many tall girls playing there weren't many young women playing basketball so I was forced to be inside um in a sense forced I don't say forced but that's where I naturally was put by the coaches but I can handle the ball and now today coaching the WBA you see the 6-3 guards and um I easily had those skills but back in the day it was just I was just ahead of my time so um yes you but are it worked out for me I, I developed a half hook shot um I didn't shoot this the hook shot like Kareem but it was kind of like a half one and that was that's what enabled me to really be a pro because I, I pretty much could score over anybody. Well, your presence was definitely felt because you were named Rookie of the Year that year, right? When you're freshman. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. How, how, when when you got that uh, news that you were indeed selected as Rookie of the Year, what thoughts went through your mind? I think that gave me a sense of Chaz, you really can't make it. You know, for me, initially, it was just like, I got to get a basketball scholarship. My parents can't afford college. And so that was really my main goal. And um, I love playing basketball. It wasn't like I didn't want to be great at it, but there weren't professional leagues. So I was like, okay, this is my way in. Um, and but so. 
But you told your mom that when you were little, you wanted to play professional basketball and there was no WNBA then, right? Yeah, no, I told her that was my ultimate dream. And my dad always taught us to that God is bigger than anything we ever could imagine. So I'd said, so dad always would tell us, make dreams that you feel like are impossible. So when I was young, I was like, well, there's going to be one when I grow up, you know, and I used to pray about it. Like, I want to be a professional basketball player. Um, but yeah, just winning rookie of the year just kind of solidified, like, you can do and be anything you want. And so from that point on, it just really instilled a, a, a confidence in me where, like, there was no turning back. Like, so, Yeah, so when you got won that rookie of the year, that kind of validated that you yeah. could indeed pursue your dream and just a matter of working hard. Yes, for sure. And we will be right back after this important message. And we're back. How'd you like NC State as, on, as a college campus? I loved NC State. We had a great community as far as for the African-American student base. We had a lot, we had a cultural center. I think we're, we're ahead of our time with that. Um, and so for me, I found a sense of um, family there and just the diversity of all the athletes coming in and just the way Coach Al was as far as integrating us into that system and making sure um, we were well-rounded. Well so for me, I had a beautiful experience at NC State, and um, I'm always ride or die Wolfpack. So everyone knows that. <laughs> well, nothing wrong with being a Wolfpack. It's got a lot of uh, basketball tradition, so good for you. And um, when you were a junior year, you were also named Kodak All-American. Yeah, um, Kodak was really big because um, I wasn't – I was – I didn't get really highly recruited until my senior – junior year in high school. So being named Kodak All-American, I was finally put on the same level as the Shamiqua Holesclaw and the, the players that, the few women basketball players that everyone talked about. So I was finally put in that category my junior year, and that really helped me moving into, like, when the pro leagues did finally, um, were finally created. You know, that, that helped me out. Kodak All-American kind of put me up there with the stars. Now, when did you feel that you were really legitimately a NCAA college basketball player that you could hang with everybody else? I believe it was when, when we beat Carolina. <laughs> um, they just had a, <laughs> they had a really talented team. And uh, Coach Hatchell still to this day was really upset that I didn't go there. So um, once, once we won that game and I kind of played really well, I had like they were triple team and double team with me. But it, I just felt like I couldn't be stopped and we beat them. That was our rival game. I kind of knew like, hey, if, if we can beat them, we can beat anybody. For me, that's how it felt. Excellent. Now, uh, I guess it was, it was during your senior year that you, uh, NC State and you made run to the NCAA Final Four, yeah. right? Yes. Um, was that the first time NCAA uh, women's team made it to Final Four up to that yes. point? Yes. And the what first was that? Uh, time. Okay. <laughs> I'm yeah. still for them to get back. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have a younger a niece or something that can play for them? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm waiting. I'm hoping one of my nieces uh, plays basketball with the same level of intensity. But um, right now, nah. And I'm not really pushing them. I want them to do whatever they love, like whatever they're good at. My my uh, first niece just graduated last year, so she's at she's attending New York University on an academic scholarship. So. I'm just like my dad with my nieces and nephews. Like, you guys got to do better than us. Um, you got to get more education, and you got to have more opportunities. So for me, basketball, academics, whatever they like, I just want to push them to have as much opportunities as they can, as many opportunities as they can. That's great. Listen, I want to unpack that uh, NC State uh, tournament run a little bit so people okay. can appreciate your accomplishment. Now, when you started running down that, uh, you know, the tournament and you got to Final 16 and Final 8, what were you thinking? What was the team thinking? I, I said, I told the team we're going to take it one game at a time. And I think we were really, we were really angry and we got motivated. Some people might not know this story, but we played Maine the first game. And the author that's from Maine, I think, is it Steven Spielberg? Maybe? No, no, I'm sorry, not Steven Spielberg. The author that wrote all those yeah. kind of horror stories. Yeah. Horror yeah I stories. What was his name? I can't think of it right I now. I can't think of his name, but. I know who you're um, talking about. He wrote Shawshank Redemption and all, yeah, and all those. So anyways, he had declared like Maine was going to beat us and uh, they had a really good guard on their team and we won that game. And so after that, I told everybody like, no one expects us to win. It's all, it's like us against everybody. So let's take one game at a time. 
and we literally concentrated on one game at a time. Like we didn't look ahead. It was just, okay, we beat Maine. Now we're on to the next game. Got to um, Ohio and we had no one expected us to beat ODU. They were, they were ODU and UConn were supposed to make it. And then th that team was going to make it to the final four. So we beat ODU and um, it was unbelievable. People started kind of turning their heads. And then when we met UConn, uh, I'll never forget, they had in the paper, they interviewed Gino, and Gino said, we're just ready to win this game so we can celebrate my birthday. And I put that article in the locker room, and I'm told, showed everyone the, the article, and I said, they're not going to be celebrating Gino's birthday tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, uh, so what I used it for motivation, and, and we were able to win that game and, and move on to the Final Four, and it was just historic for all the NC State fans. You know, it's similar to my high school state championship. People still remind me about us making that Final Four run. And what was Coach uh, K. Yao's state of uh, thinking at the time? What was her emotional state as she got closer and closer to the Final Four? As she got closer and closer, I think she really started – it was very rewarding for her to see where we had come from at the beginning of the season. So I think she put her focus on – she had – it was seemed so far out of reach for her for so long. She had never made it to the Final Four. She had had great teams, really great talent. And for her to really focus, she really just – intertwined herself in the moment with us. She started hanging out with us more at dinner. She started enjoying it more and just saying like, yeah, let's take it one game at a time. And, and I think that relieved the pressure of like, oh, I got to get there, you know, because that, <laughs> that was kind of like her one thing that, that people kind of spoke about with her legacy. She had made it to a final four and um, you know, she would come to the party. We, I remember we went, um, we did line dancing and doing different things where we had never seen her really, like outside off the court in that manner and I think that really helped us and it, we just had a really sweet beautiful time and so it was it was it was kind of magical good now when you were there as when you arrived to final four um did you guys reminisce about 1983's NC State men's basketball uh tournament with Jim Valvano no no we just we just enjoyed the moment like I we still felt like no one really is behind us except for our, we had a, a, a pretty decent fan base. Um, and so we were really surprised that once we got down there, I think we drew all of NC State's fans. You know, up until that point, it was still our small fan base. Oh, it's women's basketball. So we had like a small group and it was us against the world. But once we actually beat UConn, it just brought this entire state of North Carolina that was NC State fans. They all jumped on board, which is great. Um, and so we just – we hadn't even really thought about it until we actually got to um, Kansas City, so. Yeah. Uh, we, earlier we talked about you scoring 37 points against yeah. uh, Louisiana Tech, right? Uh, <clears throat> I mean, in your mind, you would think that scoring 37 points, you would normally win a game. <laughs> but in this particular case, it didn't work out for you. So as the final seconds were clicking off, what were some of your thoughts? Um, I was just so extremely grateful and humble, and I was really thanking God. My grandmother was there. My aunt was there. Uh, my family drove all the way from North Carolina. They rented a van. My granddad paid for it. I will never forget. And I remember they wanted me to get the record, and I remember I was so exhausted, Joe. Like, they were killing us, and I was exhausted, and I was just, just said, keep playing, keep playing. And I remember to make it to 37, I had to shoot a free throw. And I was tired. And I don't even remember the ball leaving my hand when I shot that free throw and made it. And then I came out of the game. Um, Coach Al subbed me out and I embraced her. And it was just, it was just very peaceful. It was serene because for the first time, I, I mean, well, the second time, I just entered a zone where it was just me and the basketball goal. Like, I didn't really hear the fans. Not until Coach Al subbed me out. And then I looked around and everyone was cheering for me. And it's, it was just, it was an amazing feeling. One of those things that you remember for the rest of your life. Yeah, and I remember going to my grandmother and my aunt afterwards, and they were crying, and I was telling them, like, it's okay, grandma, like, we made it. They were, <laughs> I'm like, why? Are, and they were just bawling their eyes out. And I'm like, dad, what's wrong with grandma? And, they were, and my dad was like, Chastity, he's like, they saw all those white people cheering for you, and they said they never imagined white people would be cheering for their granddaughter like that. So oh. that, that was the first time for me, like, 
I, you know, I could kind of like, we're going through all this racial tension and the racial culture, but my grandmas were crying just because they saw that moment and they never could imagine that. And for me, I, you know, I have people cheering for me every game, but at the final four, it's what, 12,000, 13,000 people standing up, giving you a standing ovation that really touched them. So for that, that was a good moment for them. So you, you I guess at that moment, made the realization that, <clears throat> excuse me, that sports could transcend. Yes. Yes. And, and the same, and it did the same thing in high school. Our, our small town was pretty segregated. Black people lived here. White people lived um, on the opposite side of the tracks, as we used to say, on the other side of the tracks. Right. And once we made it to the state championship game, they all came together and supported our team. And so, yes, I've, I've always been a, uh, a fan of that and understand exactly what Mandela was saying about sports brings people together. Excellent. Now, when you, uh, by the time you graduated from NC State, you ended up uh, being the first Wolfpack to score 2,000 points, plus you've grabbed 1,000 rebounds. <laughs> now, that's, that's pretty phenomenal, right? Yeah, so that is. It's, it's still a record today, you know, <laughs> women. Um, so, yeah, um, I think it's just something my dad and, and my grandparents taught me, like, do everything you can with every opportunity, do it with all your might. You know, that's how they raised us. Um, we were raised on a farm, so we got up early to work, and, you know, you got it done. Um, so for me, every opportunity, I try to make the best of it and give everything I got. So that's that's kind of what the record reminds me, like, hey, I gave it – my best every day, every game. And um, that's all you can do in life. Right. And, and as a result of your hard work and diligence and sacrifice and dedication, you were uh, ultimately named two-time All-ACC first team. Oh, yeah, that was great. That was awesome. <laughs> when you hear something like that, I mean, how do you hear it? Do you hear it from the coach or, from, or do you read it from the newspaper? No, I hear it from the PR person on the team. And um, – yeah, for me, that was just amazing. Because I just grew up around the ACC. So, you, I mean, I followed all the ACC men and women's players, the Don Staley's, um, before Don run the map, um, the men players, Rasheed Wallace, uh, Jerry Stackhouse. I came in with that crew. Um, so, for me, to be named on the first team was just just very like, wow, okay, I could be, I could be good. <laughs> I could be good. <laughs> because of all your accomplishments, at NC State, you were, you were ultimately inducted into NC State University's Hall of Fame. Yes. Now, how did that feel? <laughs> that was, I would say that was really a moment of like, I think sometimes once you leave a university, you just, you, the other athletes come in and you know, you know, it's just the nature of the business. Um, so for me, like I said, it's like going back to Roseboro. For me, it just brought me back home, back to NC State and like, okay, they really recognize my efforts and I, you feel appreciated. I mean, pretty simply, I felt really appreciated for my efforts and, and what I gave to the, the university. So um, that meant a, a tremendous amount to me. Um, when you were inducted into the Hall of Fame at NC State University. What did it teach you about life at that point? What are some of the realizations that came to you uh, through, through your thoughts? That, um, that people do see the little things, that people do recognize. You know, like I was always going to my mom and dad, like, I should do this. I shouldn't be so nice. I should be this way. Or you see other people achieving goals, and sometimes they go about it in different ways that maybe you wouldn't do. You know, like for me, um, I try to do things. Um, I don't always believe in wrong or right, but I just kind of had a moral code and a moral character for the way I wanted to do things. And sometimes I thought like people put a little asterisk beside it because it was like Chastity did this in a nice way. You know, it's like people just do it like in, in the opposite way. It's kind of like they get their credit a lot faster sometimes. And so for me, it just put it in perspective like it doesn't, it doesn't matter how you go about doing it. Um, you know, for me, the way I went about my career and the way I go about it in life, people will recognize it, you know. It's always going to come back to you. So that's how I feel. I mean, not only that, you're the only person from Roseboro, North Carolina, which is halfway between Fayetteville to the west and to Clinton to the east, that got inducted into North Carolina's whole state sports hall of fame in 2020. Yeah. I mean, that's separate. That separates you from 99.99% of North Carolina population. Yeah. Thoughts? 
um, I just called my dad and I was just crying. I was like, dad, like I'm, I'm you know, Michael Jordan's in the <laughs> North Carolina Sports Hall of Fame. Um, Coach K. Yow's in there. For me, I, I, and to get it so early, you know, um, I was what, 37, I believe, 30, like to reach it at that age, it was something that was not on my mindset whatsoever. You know, I, I kept telling my dad, dad, if I got to make Hall of Fame, I got to coach, I got to be a good coach, I got to win a championship. Um, still a lot of things that I, I want to achieve, but um, to be nominated and inducted so early on um, at this age was just simply humbling. And um, I, like I was crying when I, when I realized that. Well, you are one of the few in North Carolina that have that kind of an, an honor, you know, to be in such a, a distinguished company. Um, speaking of your NC State's sports experience, Let's talk about your coach Kay Yao a little bit, because I'm sure she was influenced on you. You have served as uh, an ambassador for Kay Yao Cancer Fund. So educate us a little bit about that. So coach Kay Yao, rest in peace, passed away of breast cancer. And she was um, the influencer for women uh, getting detected early, uh, speaking out about breast cancer, trying to get um, women to come out and share their stories. Um, when she first got diagnosed, she was coaching the Olympic team. And they told her not to mention it because back in the day that, you know, cancer was kind of taboo. It was like, if you got cancer, don't talk about it. You know, don't let people know and that kind of stuff. And right. Coach Yao said she wasn't going to do that. She let people know. And she said so many people pray for her. That's, she really believes that's how she beat her first battle. So um, in, um, before she passed, she had her late last battle. Um, I actually got to visit her at the hospital the night before she passed away. And um, the Chaos Cancer Fund was just something she started um, a year before that to raise awareness. She wanted to have basketball games that celebrated women who were fighting this courageous battle and bring more acknowledgement and raise money. And so for me, I couldn't really get into coaching after I retired. And there was an opportunity to work at the fund. And it was one of the most humbling and informative experiences for me because I learned a lot about Coach Al's fight. Um, she was a superhero to me. So when she was fighting, Coach Al never let you know she was down or how hard it was. Um, so I didn't understand that until I started working for the fund and heard the stories of the treatments and her coming to practice without energy. And like, we never really knew how bad it was. I understand. What was Coach Yao's uh, coaching philosophy on the court? Just uh, play as a team, respect each other, and play hard and play together. I mean, that was her short and simple. Play hard, play together, play for each other, um, respect everyone's, um, you know, culture and the differences. And, and we were a family. So there was a strong foundation on those core principles. When you look back uh, at Coach Yao and you are presently coaching, does some of that rub off on you? Does it impact you? All the time. All the time. I say her little sayings, her little quotes, and um, I hear in the back of my mind um, just everything that she taught me. So, yeah, she definitely comes out. And it's not just me. It's all my Wolfpack sisters that are coaching. We joke about it all the time. We used to make fun of her while we were playing for her, and now we do it. <laughs> now we do all the time. <laughs> so it's fair to say, while she may be gone physically, you guys are her legacy. Yes, definitely, definitely. And um, I mean, it, and we carry that, you know, we want to, uh, every time we feel like, okay, I know Coach Al's proud of me. Like, am I doing the best job where Coach Al, you know, she's watching down, like she's proud of how I'm working and, and how I'm building these young ladies and trying to, you know, help them become the women that she helped us all be become. And I'm sure she's proud of you. And we will be right back after this important message. And we're back. All right. My guest on today's Fry It Up podcast is Coach Chastity Melvin of the WNBA's Phoenix Mercury and an accomplished writer of a new book entitled At the End of the Day, which is an inspiring story of overcoming and succeeding in life that Chastity, uh, Chastity wants to share with the community in general. Welcome back, Chastity. And uh, at the last segment, we ended up with uh, your NC State University's uh, playing career, as well as the impact of Coach Yao's presence and our philosophy of coaching in your life. Now, 
you have at this point graduated from NC State. What was it like after you graduated from state uh, college like NC State with uh, such a nice basketball record, and then you got your whole future ahead of ahead of you? What are some of your thoughts at the time? Uh, at the time, I was I was pretty nervous, but the ABL, the there were two leagues. There was the ABL and WNBA, and so for me. I was calling my mom like, mom, they have professional women's league and I'm <laughs> drafted. Like I told you, I told you. So uh, just for my whole family, we're just waiting to hear my name called. Uh, Coach Yow said I had a really good chance. And um, once I got drafted, it's just, it's kind of like the whole work ethic and the whole chasing the dream started over again. Like it was like I was a freshman again at NC State. So um, I just entered the world, ABL, went to Philadelphia. Um, another a huge city outside of Raleigh. Uh, so for me, it was just a young woman just trying to find her way and um, as well as on, off the court, as well as um, on the court. So for me, it was just fun. Yeah. You're being modest because not only were you drafted, I mean, it's an honor <laughs> to be drafted in the first round, much less you being drafted number two in the first round. Is that correct? Yeah, I was number two and selected number two for the Philadelphia Rage. Um, and it was just amazing. And um, I got a lot of some feedback because I didn't choose the WNBA. I chose the ABL. Um, what was your reason for that? I wanted to play the regular season, the traditional season. So I wanted to play like a college in the NBA. I wanted to play from October until April. Um, I didn't want to go overseas. I knew a lot of the players played in the summer and they went overseas. And that was the main reason I chose the ABL. A lot of people thought I chose for money, but I was like, if I could play in the fall season and be in the States, you know, why not? <laughs> right. Now, Philadelphia is an exciting place to be when you're young, right? Yeah, for me, I was like, I'm going to Philly. Like, <laughs> I can be there. I have my own apartment. So, for me, I was that was the American dream. That's what people want when they graduate from college. So, for me, that's that's right, that was a big reason why I chose the ABL. And they had all the great players that I grew up looking up to, and I wanted to challenge them. So, I mean, that's another reason. Now, what part of uh, Philly did you live in? Because we have, you know, in case for people that are from Philadelphia. Yeah, I actually live right outside of Philly in Andalusia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's... Is that up Schuylkill River? It was north of Philly. Okay. What's the, yeah. what's the next town over? Um, I can't remember exactly. I think it started with a P, but I'm not for sure. Okay. But I was downtown all the time. <laughs> okay. Now, what did you think about the Philadelphia cheesesteak when you first time you I love the Philly cheesesteaks. Which I one are you? Did you like the one versus the other down uh, by Pass Young down there? Um, I like I like the one that I believe it starts with a J. Yeah, Gino. There's a Gino's, and then there was another one. Um, yeah. Which one did you like? You like the chopped meat or uh, without the meat being chopped? No, I like the chopped meat. I like the one that was real fine. That's that was just me. That was my person. Like chop it up real fine, have the cheese and the peppers. That's that's the best Philly steak ever. Um, now, I, if I played today, I couldn't eat it as much as I used to. <laughs> well, you know what? It used to, the whole sub used to be 12 inches, but now it's about 8 inches. So you probably... Yeah, you know, everything changes. All the good stuff has changed. Even the pizza used to be better back in the day. I don't know what's going on. I guess <laughs> I... <laughs> did, you pass, did you cross paths with uh, Dr. J while you were up there? No, I didn't. But I did cross paths with Mo Cheeks, Murray's Cheeks. Um, I used to play pickup because Ann Donovan was my coach at the time. So she, it's funny, I never tell, forget to tell people, like, I forgot about that. I got to play pickup with Murray's Cheeks, a couple of the other 76ers. Um, Charles Barkley was, came through just to pick up to talk to Murray's Cheeks. And I was just in awe, like, no one will ever believe this. I mean, I got in because of Annie D, but, um, yeah, that was just amazing. Now, you know, for a little girl that came from Roseboro, North Carolina, yeah. drafted by uh, WNBA, especially in the big city of Philadelphia. I mean, that must have been really an uh, eye-opener. It was. My mother went down there with me and just traveling, I mean, driving through the city and everything. I'm like, Mom, did you ever think this? Like, you know, my dad always told us the, you know, dream impossible dreams and God would give us the desires of our heart. But, you know, he gave me more than I really ever imagined, kind of, you know. Um, I guess so, that's the point, huh? Yeah, yeah. You dream, you dream big, you dream the impossible, and let God work it out. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's my, that's, that's my motto, so. Okay, so uh, 
1999, you uh, went into WNBA because ABL had folded, I guess, at that time? Yes. Yeah, ABL folded around Christmas time. Um, went through a lot of depression a little bit. A lot, All the athletes did. Um, but I had my faith and I had my family, and uh, I was able to go get a contract overseas. My agent got me a contract overseas, and that was the first time I went into Europe. So then I went from Philly to Vigo, Spain, in northern Spain. And... Um, Nothing wrong with that. Beautiful country. Yeah, it was just it was just a new life after that. Overseas, back in the WNBA. Um, that summer, the WNBA drafted me with the eleven pick with the Cleveland Rockers. Right. So again, I went in the first round, so I was just blessed, you know. Like, and for me, I just wanted to, you know, not let my family down, not let the fans down, and, and try to be really successful in the pro league. But you had already accomplished so much coming from a small town, you know. At yeah. this point, you actually made it to professional where you actually got paid to play something that you enjoyed doing anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Now, when you got no, up, sure. go ahead. No, for sure. It was unbelievable. Just mind-boggling sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, when you got drafted by WNBA in 1999, um, the WNBA was only three years old, so it was still formulating systems and I imagine personnel and all those things so it would be accurate to say that individual like you were one of the forerunners of the present women's NBA players is that right yes yes, yes. definitely and when I came in the league um, I remember coach Al, coach Hatchell and all their stories about when they were coaching and men didn't want them to coach and uh, the girls didn't have uniforms. They had to drive the bus. They, they coached all the women's sports. Um, they didn't have women's basketball until Coach Yao came. So for me, um, I had learned from her and learned from the, the true pioneers of the women's basketball game. And I wanted to carry that same legacy and really be the best I could on the court and really join forces with the other females and really making this league work and showing people that we could um, have a successful league. And that not only that, but that we were talented and we could play basketball. Right, and you had made a statement in the past when you were playing WNBA that all the women seemed to have understood the symbolism of what they were doing at the time. Oh, yeah, for sure. I so mean, elaborate on that a little bit for us. Well, I, I believe it's, it's, it's kind of like, I mean, we just came together. Like, if someone wasn't um, promoting the league in a good way, you know, you had vets from other teams, like, reaching out. We had meetings like, guys, we got to make this work for future generations. We have to make sacrifices. When people started complaining about we should get paid more money, um, you know, people were like, I'm just going to go overseas. I'm not going to play in the WNBA. We had some players that were like, no, I can make more money overseas. You know, some of the great players. And, you know, we convinced them, like, stay. You got – we need your name. This is going to help. This is going to make the league. Um, so we were very – we were all unified for a common goal. I mean, off the court as well as on the court. And um, every team, you know, from the starters, the stars, to the last person on the bench, to the coaches, um, really making sacrifices because it, it's not what it was today. It wasn't the pay. Um, the travel was bad. People were getting cut when they were pregnant. There were a lot of things that we had to keep internal, um, you know, to build those years up. And it's not, it's not any different from the NBA. My dad, and, you know, I grew up watching the NBA with my dad. It was a totally different league. Um, they went through similar situations, guys getting cut when they were injured. So um, people kind of get that um, part of the NBA story because they're a multi-billion <laughs> um, dollar organization right now. But they didn't start out that way. So the players here you're coaching today really owe a lot to someone like you who really paved the way and paid the heavy price to make WNBA what it is today. Yes, for sure. For, for the WNBA and overseas, now you have players getting paid a million dollars overseas. That's, that is generally because the WNBA was so successful. Yes. Um, because of the brand of professional women's basketball, a new brand, and now overseas they want to pay more. They want to pay more for the best player in the world. Um, so, they, I, I mean, I hope that they remembered. I think we have some great leadership, but we're about to lose a couple of our vets. Um, some of the main people that start out in the league will soon be retiring and it's going to be up to the younger generation to continue the tradition and also remember the big picture. Like this is not something that has just been around for years and years and years. They still have to build it and they still have to solidify the foundation of the WNBA. Well, you're one of the uh, certainly forerunners of those uh, people that made the present possible, I think. Thank you. Okay, let's move on to uh, Cleveland. Uh, 
after uh, ABL folded and then you would came back to WNBA in 19, uh, I guess, 1999. 1999. So, yeah. yeah 99. Uh, you went to Cleveland. Um, Cleveland Rockers, right? Yes. Uh, what was the difference between playing for Cleveland versus Philadelphia in terms of the city? Did you like the city better or what was the comparative difference there? I actually love both cities. And <laughs> people make fun of me, but I do realize that the WNBA and the um, ABL, uh, the ABL folded. So I was actually in Philly during nice weather, you know, before Christmas, it was just getting cold. So I didn't experience the brutal winters. And then when I went to Cleveland, I was there during the summer months. So that's when everybody's out, there's cookouts, everything's going on downtown, <laughs> you know, because it's freezing during the winter. So for me, I got that side of Cleveland. I got the fun and I, I wasn't there when it's like cold snowy every day um so I love Cleveland people were like you love Cleveland and I was like after I thought about it I'm like oh yeah I was there. <laughs> well, you, well you put Cleveland on the map before LeBron came along right <laughs> yes 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 but yeah my family we love going down to Cleveland for the summer we enjoyed it excellent and then you went to Washington Mystics for a while yeah, yeah, enjoyed um, D.C. Um, tremendously. We lived in Virginia right across the bridge, but just so much to do downtown in D.C. And um, obviously with all the museums, it was a great place for family and friends to come visit because they all had something to do besides our, our basketball games. So for sure I had a – and the fans were really great. Um, Cleveland folded. I was really very – a little bit depressed about that because I had such a um, – a genuine relationship with the fans and the owners and, and the people down in Cleveland. So for me, I felt like, wow, losing that foundation, it was just hard. And then going to DC and just uh, the fans accepting me and they had a great fan base there was, um, was very good for me. What were some of your uh, depressive thoughts when uh, the team started to fold? I just felt, I, it just gave, it gave a bad look to the league, uh, especially for us. We had a great fan base. We lost to Detroit my last year there, and they went on to win the championship that year. Um, and, you know, we were putting so much into it, you know. And I, mean, I guess, you know, that's just businesses, and I feel for people, entrepreneurs, who put a lot into it, and then it's, it's gone the next day, you know. And so for me, I, that was my first – I was still a young kid, kind of naive out of college, but that was my first introduction kind of to the real life. You know, the ABL folded, then the Cleveland folded. And I'm like, okay, God, give me a sign. Like, what are you trying to tell me? Um, so for me, that gave me a new perspective on life and just how, how you have an opportunity, but it also can be taken away in professional sports very easily. Um, when you but look I didn't like the history of the league. I didn't like it at all. I thought, I wished, I mean, like the Houston comments when they folded, I hated that. You know, such tradition and legacy there. And, and now people really don't know about it. When you look back on it as an adult, what was the problem that caused uh, these kind of demising of the uh, league and the teams? I think because the WNBA, when it started out, the teams were sisters to the brother team. And they kept some of the, they, can't, they kept the same staffs from the NBA to work for the WNBA team. So essentially that NBA staff was working year round, as opposed to in the summer, they kind of had, that was their only time downtime um, people don't know the NBA is so many games it's a very uh challenging season so uh, I won't put all the onus on the workers but it's kind of like we were the vacation team you know so I think if they would have got different staffs for the summer and really focus on building each the WNBA team and, and then it was different from the NBA we we had a different fan base we attracted different sponsors and so a lot of the NBA was like hey, we're the NBA. People just come to us. They flock to us, you know? And then it's, you go in with the WNBA and no one's like, oh, we're not sure. We don't know. Um, so I think that hurt us because you needed, to hold, you needed a whole different marketing plan and you had to be strategic with how um, the WNBA would be presented to the fans, uh, to sponsors and different ones. that We couldn't be presented in the same way as the NBA. So the issue was essentially uh, the business model problem as opposed yeah. to personnel or, or players, right? No, it, it definitely wasn't the players and the fans. The fan, like people would like to say we didn't have fans. We had fans back in the day. People saw people cheering for the Houston Comets. It was the, the fans and we had a good quality um, on the court. It was just off the court. Um, and I mean, 
that's no fault of anyone's really. You think basketball, everyone should support back. It's still the same game, but we're women playing the game. And that, that, that didn't sit over well with, you know, certain people. So. Has the business model changed uh, since then to uh, say Phoenix, uh, where you are now? Yeah, no, I think they have more, they have separate general managers and um, the president, you know, gets a different staff for the organization. So the ones that are super successful have the separate owners. Some of them have separate owners that have, who really focus in on, on the WNBA team because it takes a lot of focus. It's, it's an entire league. It's an entire different league than the NBA. So they have um, learned. So they have learned. And um, hopefully with uh, our new pre president, um, Kathy Ebert, she'll bring about positive change and we can continue moving forward. Excellent. And we will be right back after this important message. And we're back. Now I want to talk about one incident that uh, you had uh, that was kind of serious and uh, get your thoughts on it, all right? Uh, when you were playing for Chicago Sky and you were playing against New York Liberty, in one of those plays, uh, Someone hit you in the eye, and your eyes came out of the socket. Yes, which was very serious. Yeah. What What happened? Well, she was trying to steal the ball, and her fingers went in my eye and just kind of dislodged the eyeball, and it just really stretched the muscles, which basically tore all the muscles in my eye. Um, so it was very painful. It felt like I got knocked out by a boxer. I just kind of saw black. Uh, passed out and I, I didn't really know my I was out until my trainer came and she was like oh my gosh this doesn't look good <laughs> and then once I felt like I couldn't see I did like this and I couldn't see out of my left eye and I was just I started screaming um, but um freak incident went to the hospital was waiting on the doctor they had to call in a, a, a surgeon and I didn't have to have surgery got on a steroid and um, I healed within six weeks from the steroid and didn't have to have surgery so it worked out and you have fully recovered from that? Yes, yes, fully recovered. No vision problems or anything like that? Well, your parents must have been awfully scared when that happened. Well, they weren't scared. They just started praying. They had, they had, they had everyone in Roseboro praying, so that's probably why I recovered successfully. <laughs> well, and that's one of the great things about small towns is that people can be mobilized, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so, uh, let's move on. We got to move on because you know, I can talk to you for, you know, for a long time, but we got to move yeah. on now. Uh, before we move on to the next segment, uh, in 2001, you were named uh, one of the WNBA All-Star players. Now, that's an honor, any way you look at it. Yeah. So, no, it was, it was a tremendous honor. Um, it's something that I wanted to be up there. It's kind of like when I got Kodak All-American and first team All-ACC. So to become an All-Star just gave me the confidence that I could stay in the league. Um, not that I was just going to be there for a few years, but that I was going to be a, a, a valuable part of the league and have a successful career. That's great. That's great. Uh, now let's talk about your overseas experience because that's a totally different uh, enterprise. Yeah. Uh, you played in Italy, Israel, Spain, Poland, Russia, and China. And obviously we can't discuss every one of them, but uh, what were, out of those uh, countries, what were some of the memorable moments that uh, still stays with you and for what reason? Uh, Israel, because I played there the longest, total of five seasons. Um, uh, just because of my faith base, I got to visit all the places that I learned about in the Bible. Um, I was able to bring my mother and them there. Um, I have like a second family in Israel that kind of adopted me and let me live in their home. Um, so Israel was just very good for me. I played great basketball. Um, it was, it's a small country. So you get to travel the country in less than seven hours. Um, there's a beach in every city. So for me, I really enjoyed it. And it's very diverse. A lot of people think it's just, you know, um, just the traditional Jewish people there, but there is very diverse. You know, you have your Russians, Italians. And so the food culture was really good for me. I loved it. <laughs> and I just had a great time there, but I enjoyed every country and I tried to learn as much as by each one as I did could when I, when I played there. Yeah. Uh, Russia. How was it playing for Russia? Russia was not easy. Um, I came from North Carolina, small town, rural girl. So I get to see the sunshine every day. And really, my biggest issue with Russia is no sunlight. Um, that was depressing, like literally depressing. And I, I definitely understood that why the Russians drank vodka all the time. I even started drinking vodka. Like it's just, <laughs> it's freezing cold and there's no sun. Yeah. So for me, Russia was, was pretty hard. Um, so I only played there one year because for me, 
that was the place I made the most money ever in my career. But at the same time, like I said, I got to be at peace and I got to feel good. So I need sunshine in my life. <laughs> well, before we leave Russia, tell, tell us something you enjoyed about Russia. Uh, what did I enjoy about Russia? That's tough, Michelle. <laughs> That's the vodka. <laughs> uh, what did I enjoy? You know what? It's funny. <laughs> it's funny. The thing I enjoyed about Russia was the sushi. <laughs> they had great sushi there. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure why they had great sushi there, but it was good. <laughs> That's one of those ironies of life, right? The best sushi right. is in Russia. Hey, yeah. small world, what can I say? What was your overall view of China, playing for China? And I'm talking about mainland China, right? Yeah, yeah. China was just, China was cool just because their culture is so different. Cool um, or cold? Cool. Okay. I did stay in a cold part of China. I was in Narbeen, China for a while. So it was freezing there because it's close to Russia. But um, I love the culture and the style and the fashion. Um, you know, it's just, you know, I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the Chinese food. Uh, I remember one of my friends telling me uh, when I was younger, like, this isn't real Chinese food. And I got it after I played in China. <laughs> I was like, they were right. Like, Chinese food is so delicious. And, and China helped me. Um, evolved as far as eating spicy food. I never ate spicy food before I played in China. China, I couldn't get away from it. So I am very tired <laughs> of spicy food now because of China. But the only issue is like, there's no personal space. So for me, that was irritating. <laughs> well, but after that, it was cool. But playing overall, you know, uh, in overseas, you did, a, you had a successful seasons because uh, out of those teams, you won five overall championship uh, championships and number of individual honors while you're playing there, right? Right. No, overseas was brilliant for me. Uh, I was one of the players. I understood the players when they said, I can just play overseas and have my summers with my family. Um, but for me, I played year-round. I was committed. But I enjoyed I, – I mean, I would have loved to just play overseas because I was getting educated. Um, I was becoming more diverse. And I also got to play the game I love. So, for me, um, I did enjoy overseas. Excellent. All right, we're going to now close that chapter out. We're going to talk about a new chapter called coaching. <laughs> yes. All right, so we're catching up to where you're, you are almost. Um, you were the first uh, female coach that Charlotte Hornets hired to coach the G, uh, the G League. Now, that was very symbolic. So tell us what was going through your mind when Charlotte Hornets contacted you for that. Really, I was just excited to get a coaching opportunity. Uh, for me, I had retired and I was trying to get into coaching, couldn't quite get my foot in the door. I was able to participate in the NBA assistant coaches program with 18 other former NBA guys. I learned the game. I learned a lot from them. And to have that opportunity and actually be hired, I felt good about my interview. I thought I came prepared. And um, for me, it's just another part of my story. Like, okay, God, like, I, I was just trying to get coaching in college. I didn't really make a goal to coach in the NBA or the G League. So to have the opportunity was just another sign. Like you put in the word, you, you keep doing things the right way and the way you've always done and you'll get rewarded. For the people that who may not be familiar with uh, what is G League, will you elaborate on that for us? Yeah, the G League is sort of like um, the minor leagues for the NBA. Uh, they actually don't like you saying that but it's, it's it's still professional but it's like guys you draft and you never see them play the g league was created so those guys could get in shape and actually be playing instead of sitting on the bench so when they're ready to be called up they're actually ready playing game and then playing shape so it's actually really good for the g league you've seen a lot of guys with toronto raptors pascals came out of the g league guys are now ready and becoming stars because they actually got playing time in the g league instead of riding the bench and waiting for their turn what was the uh, reception that you received from uh, male players when they realized that they're going to have a female coach i mean i think at the beginning there was a little bit of um, hesitancy on the the men but once I started coaching and they understood I knew exactly what I was talking about and that I can make them a help, help them become a better player, then the trust factor was there. And it, they no longer was like, oh, we got a women's coach. It was just, it's Coach Chas, you know, and how can you help me get better? So based on your experience and accomplishments and knowledge, you basically transcended the gender, potential gender issue. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's what I say across the board. I'm like, it, it's just like with anything, you know, you don't want to – 
a lot of people like in the business world, they don't want to hire a female as a CEO, but you know, if they have the background, they have the experience, you know, you hire people on what they're capable of doing, but their experience and their background and their expertise. And that, and that's what I showed to the guys. Like, I know what I'm talking about. I played the game professionally for a long time and you can't help, but I mean, they may not have liked it personally, but they respected it. And um, that's what, that's what any, that's all what any coach wants, whether you're male or female, they want respect from their players. So in the end, basketball is basketball. At the end of the day, basketball is basketball. <laughs> and that's what I learned, Cho. People ask me this question all the time. And I say, you know what I learned? That it's really true. Basketball is basketball. And you either know it or you don't. That's right. And you broke through that glass ceiling. Yes. And hopefully uh, other women will follow your footsteps because you did uh, break through that. I hope there are more opportunities for women and, and um, African-American men. I just, I, just, I just feel like the NBA, the NCAA, needs to become more diverse with their coaching staff across the board. Um, young black women, young black males, it just, I mean, young Chinese, Hispanic coach. I mean, it just needs to become more diverse. And um, I, it, it won't only help the, um, the players, but it'll help the leagues and the fansmanship of just having more diverse coaching staffs. I gotcha. Uh, you know, COVID has impacted a lot of people in different ways in society. You know, some people lost this or that, or the business is shutting down, and some people have passed on because of the illness and all those things. Yes. Uh, COVID has also impacted you personally. Tell us about that. Um, just, just, again, I've already dealt with loss before, but I was coaching in college before this season started, and um, we were furloughed point because of COVID. Now, um, you were actually hired as a coach at Loyola in Maryland. Yeah. yeah Loyola, Tell us Loyola. about that. Yeah. You started there. Yeah. I started at Loyola. We were doing well. We were able to finish our season, but once COVID hit, everything just shut down. And our players had to leave immediately, you know, and you, you kind of have this family atmosphere in college and coach went his way. We went home. Uh, it was just crazy, you know, just dispersing at the, at such a quick, like so quickly was hard on everyone, I think, and then just not knowing, you know. Um, so for me, um, I, I was able to get back home and spend time with my family. Uh, fortunately for all of us, they, they still kept their jobs. But it's just kind of like being in that unknown area of your life. Like, okay, what's going to happen next? Am I going back to work? Do I need to go here? And, um, you know, having this opportunity to come play for the WBA was just a godsend. It was divine. It wasn't, I was coaching with Loyola, didn't even, wasn't even really thinking about the WBA. So um, I'm just taking the opportunities that I have and trying to learn more about myself outside of basketball because basketball was taken away from all the coaches and the players. Um, so it's, it's helped me with my creative side. Okay. Uh, it would have been interesting to see to have seen you play, I mean, be a coach for Loyola for a while, you know, to see you develop as head coach. But, you know, you had some other cards in the deck and here you are, you know, uh, being assistant at the professional level. Philosophical question. Uh, you know, men do coach women's basketball. Do yes. you think women should be able to coach men's basketball team? Oh, for sure. In yes. college, that is, you know. In college, yeah. I think it's blatant, blatantly wrong. I think it's <laughs> Blatant discrimination, you know, that there aren't any women coaching male coach team. Right. And I get it from the tradition. Like, even my dad, when I got the job with the G League, he was like, I don't know if I want you coaching men. And I'm like, Dad, I'm coaching basketball players. Like, right. I get it. They, they're always like, well, women don't believe, belong in the locker rooms with 12 other men. And I'm like, well, do men necessarily belong in the locker room with 12 other women? Right, like, you're right, right. I mean, I'm just, I'm yeah. confused. Like, and and then I'm like, the coach is not in the locker room. Like, I'm not, I'm not with those guys in their personal space. I'm coaching them. And I right. feel like I should be allowed to coach them um, on the sidelines because it's basketball. And they, and they get to coach us. Right. Um, I do, I do understand. Like my dad says, you know, you, you teach these young um, men to young boys to become men and I'm like okay dad but just like a male coaches a women's team and he hires three females on his staff or maybe two females and another male I could be a head coach of a men's team and hire three males to be on my staff to provide leadership mentorship and because that's what they do in general anyways the head coach is not taking care of all those problems the assistants right. is Right. Um, so for me, I just, I think is I think it's, I know it's discrimination. I know women who have sent in resumes for 
um, to be hired as a head coach for different D1 programs for men. And they don't even get interviews. We don't, we don't even get interviews. It's not that we aren't getting hired. We also aren't getting interviewed for that job. Um, I, so I don't know. It's just going to take time for change. Um, and hopefully, you know, some of those opportunities and doors will be open. Well, I hope somebody hears you and your a viewpoint on this. Uh, within 30 seconds, uh, tell me about Hoops for Hope when you went down to Colombia, uh, South America. Oh, yeah. Colombia, Kenya, the Hoops for Hope is just giving camps to clinics um, for young kids uh, without the resources. Um, very rewarding. They loved it. And they're so, um, they're so hungry for someone helping them and motivating them and inspiring them. Okay. Um, Again, because of time, we're going to try to keep it short. Tell us about your near-death experience and what that was all about. So my near-death experience in China, uh, you may be familiar with, they drive really crazy over there. Um, we were driving late. The bus decided to pass a truck, and he decided to switch at the last moment. We crashed into him. Tree branches, deep ditch, uh, glasses breaking, and I just said a little prayer, and um, I was able to, you know, make it through that. Some of my teammates had serious injuries, but I was without any bruises or anything. Okay, thank you. Well, Chastity, thank you for sharing your life with us, and uh, I want you to promise me that when you become head coach somewhere, and that's just a matter of time, and when you become successful, even more bigger than you are now, that you're not going to forget the little people like me. And you're going to come back yeah. and share the good news with us, right? For sure. For <laughs> sure. Def definitely won't. I got you on tape. Now, this concludes our Fry It Up with Chastity Melvin, a Phoenix Mercury new assistant basketball coach. And this program is about individuals overcoming life situations to live the life that they're destined. Why? Because they work for it. So be encouraged and keep on trucking. Until the next chapter, this is Augustus Cho, over and out.